Jonathan Wakefield is a brewmaster and founder of Miami's renowned J. Wakefield Brewing. Now he's opening up his internationally acclaimed tap room at Sirius XM Business Radio for an intimate look at the intersection of craft beer and popular culture. So pull up a chair, have a round on us, and join the conversation on the business of brewing. This is the Beer Hour with Jonathan Wakefield on Sirius XM Business Radio. Hi, I'm Jonathan Wakefield, and this is the Beer Hour on Sirius XM Business Radio 132. Each week, we introduce you to the movers and shakers of the craft beer industry, as well as beer lovers from other interesting fields of endeavors. You won't find most of them anywhere else on the radio. I'm here in the taproom with my co-host, our head brewer, Maria Cabre. Privets, Maria. I don't know what language that is, but hello, John. Our first guest opened a brewery about two miles from his high school with his high school friend, his brother, and his cousin, an MLB pitcher. Located in the Tony Palm Beach town of Jupiter, Florida, they quickly built a following of loyal fans. Nestled among upscale boutiques and fine dining establishments, his brewery has garnered national attention and is beloved by locals and beer tourists alike. Welcome to the Beer Hour, Carl Volstead. How you doing, man? I'm good. How are you? Not too bad. Uh, thank you very Thanks much for, for having me. Yeah, well, thank you for coming on the show. We are obviously joined here by uh, Maria Cabre as well. Hi, Carl. And uh, I, I did from the jump just want to point out that you are our first brewer guest from Florida. Some of that, I mean, we've also, I've known All you right. a very long time, but you are the first yes. Florida guest. Awesome. Well, I appreciate that. Well, anytime, anytime, brother. I mean, it's, uh, how, how long have we known each other now? I would say, uh, over, uh, over a decade. That. Yeah. Yeah. It's been, a, it's been a minute. Since uh, you and Evan came down to the bottle share in my backyard of my house, yeah, it's. I think it's been over a decade. I've heard that That's story right. a few times. Oh yeah, it's been. Uh, that was a great bottle share, by the way. And it really and, was. and Geiger, who we saw in D.C., was also at that bottle share. Uh, that was before yep. he worked for Cigar City. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> given that when you, you know you and I were growing up here in Florida, there was really. I mean, there was no craft beer. I mean, there was no craft beer scene, craft beer. You couldn't even buy it in the stores. I, I mean, up until a point, I think 2006, 2007, I mean, you can only get like Belgian stuff and Total Wine. I, I mean, Total Wine didn't even exist. How did you develop your love of craft beer? And was there an aha moment with a specific beer that you would say? Um, so I can go back to that time period when I was in college, probably 04, 05, 06. Um, there was a bottle shop down the street where you kind of make your own six pack. So I just go in there and make a different six pack every weekend and, and kind of roll through it, figured out the the styles that I liked, what I didn't like. And that kind of got me into it to start. And then, um, you know, as I, as I got more involved in it, you know, I realized that trading was a thing and, right. you know, the ability to get beer regionally was a thing, but getting beer from other States or, Oh, it was was next to impossible so started down that train as well i mean i think really for me right it was like i used to get beer shipped in and my aha moment was um yep firestone walker pale ale that was kind of like the beer that kind of set me off on the on the path to home brewing but then really when 2009 rolled around and cigar city opened it was like a whole another experience um given that you know you and i basically had the same kind of path like uh mm-hmm most others in the, in the business, you started as a craft beer lover, trader, eventually home brewer. Tell us about that first home brew and was it drinkable? <laughs> uh, it wasn't bad. I got the first time I ever brewed was, uh, was with a buddy, uh, a fellow, uh, like beer guy who I traded with. And then we, we did one of those recipes that you got that was like an extract brew. Right. So it turned out, it turned out fine. Um, <laughs> And then the second time I brewed, I, it didn't brew for a, a little while after that. And then I jumped into all grain on my own, writing my own recipes on the second brew. And that was not so bueno. No, no. I, 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 uh, I think I started out the same path. It was like extract to China, you know, like get your feet going and then eventually move on. But I think even like that first all grain batch, I got guidance from Ben Granger, who is, you know, he works at other half and. He's a do-it-all man, but back then he had a bottle shop and a homebrew shop in Brooklyn, and he was like, you should do like a mango IPA. And he's like, put the fruit 
in primary fermentation, you know, from the <laughs> jump. And it just like, I remember, dude, it just like blew up all over the roof of my, like my house. And it was, it was horrible, but it never deterred me from keep going forward. Um, yeah, all those setbacks and just learning, right? Exactly. I mean, uh, you know, you have to have failures to understand and keep moving forward and, and you know, progress in the things and, and become better at what you do. Um, Absolutely. So you and your business partner, Evan Miller, you know, you met in high school. Okay. Mm-hmm. What were you guys like in high school and how long after high school did you first discuss opening a brewery? What were we like in high school? I don't know. We, we played a lot of sports in high school. So, you know, soccer, basketball. <laughs> Um, it was always on some sort of a travel team for basketball. So we were around each other all the time. Um, went to a Christian school. So really didn't, didn't ever drink in high school or anything like that. That wasn't until college. And then, um, after college, uh, Evan was a, uh, engineer on boats. So he yep. would travel around and I started home brewing probably around Oh six Oh seven. And then, he came back into town in 08 and I was just like, Hey, you want to come hang out and brew? And then we started doing that together. And then I don't know at what point in time, maybe 2010, something like that. We kind of were like, well, we, I feel like we're making better beer than we could buy. Like maybe this might be a profession for us. So there's always that moment. I think, yeah, you're like, you all of a sudden you're brewing beer. And it's like you realize, well, this is better than what I'm buying at home. I mean, at, at the store, like why, you know, right. maybe we should do this, you know, ourselves professionally. So your partners being, you know, your brother, uh, your cousin uh, and Evan, mm-hmm. uh, who is, you know, I mean, and your cousin is former major league, you know, pitcher, Chris Volstad. Chris played yeah. for several, you know, several teams that mm-hmm. then Florida Marlins, which must have been, you know cool for your family to drive down and see him pitch in every home game i mean was chris involved from the beginning when you and everyone were hashing out plans or when along the line did he get involved in this so we were we were no he was not involved like going back to like the the homebrew days um but once we kind of got the idea that we wanted to open a brewery and we were you know looking around to um find partners to open with raise money things like that he came into the picture um and, uh, yeah, I mean, he was involved from the jump with the actual planning of the space, um, you know, ordering equipment, stuff like that. I mean, so he had a crash course, like, you know, he learned quite a bit real fast about brewing. I mean, but your brother, I think your brother was involved from the jump though. Yeah. KJ was, he would homebrew with us. So we would, um, we'd start brewing at seven in the morning, you know, because we didn't want to waste the entire day. And at that point in time, KJ was probably, I don't know, nineteen twenty, So he was still sleeping until 11. So he'd roll, he'd roll out and help us knock out. Right. And then he kind of got into it. So he'd get up earlier and, and like go through the process and learn stuff. Um, and then when we opened up, I mean, he was intimately involved in, in what we were doing when we opened up. So how long have you guys been open now? We opened November 19 of 2015 so and basically yeah, yeah the same the same year we opened but just later yep. in the year and where, where was your first location for our listeners uh, out there yeah so we're in jupiter florida in a little community called abacoa just next to um the uh, uh stadium where the cardinals and the marlins do their spring training so yeah south end of jupiter florida so, I mean, for the, I mean, obviously, which is a different setting, I think it's a little more laid back, but actually the area that you guys first opened in is actually very awesome. And having that kind of spring training, I mean, did you see a lot of influx of tourists and stuff from that area when you guys first opened from the baseball scene? Oh yeah. I mean, March is crazy. You know, end of February going into March um, is nuts. Obviously the last two years have been their own special experience and trying to figure out, you know, things that are going on, but, uh, in a normal world, spring training is insane. I mean, the amount of Cardinals fans that, that come down here, I mean, they make it like it's their, their, their yearly travel is they, they plan to come down here for a week. Some stay for the entire you know month of spring training. Wow. It's pretty wild. That's crazy. So mm-hmm. Miami's notoriously difficult to get any new business up and running, especially, a, you know, in my case, a brewery. I mean, I knew what I went through. What was your experience opening a brewery, you know, opening civil society in, in uh, Jupiter? 
Yeah. So, I mean, when we were opening up, I mean, you know, you kind of mentioned it off the jump here that Florida was like a wasteland for breweries. I mean, Cigar City opened in 09. I think, you know, Funky had like their small space that they had opened shortly thereafter. But, you know, none of these municipalities had a roadmap on how to open up a, a brewery. Um, so we had to go through the the town council. We had to create a use. Um, so basically you can, there's a restaurant, right? And there's a use in the town ordinance that says that you can open a restaurant in these certain areas and it defines what a restaurant is. Well, there was nothing like that for a brewery. So we had to actually create that use and go in front of the town council and get it approved. And that was a nine month process before we wow. could even, you know, say, Hey, we want to rent this space. So you actually had to go in front of the council and it took nine months for you to even get approval. Yep. So you have to do, you have to write the text and add it to the code. So we had to define what a microbrewery was, add it to the code. That was a four month process. And then there was another four month process that you had to go through to get in front of the council. And they're not, I mean, we're kind of getting into minutiae here, but they had to, you had to create it. It wasn't a use by right. It was not like anybody could just go and open a brewery. It was called, it's what's called a special exception. So you had to then go in front of the council once you said you were going to open a microbrewery and they had to approve that use in wow. that area. So, I mean, that's so, how it started. But then after that nine month process, did everything else after that kind of go smoothly? Oh, like the. Yeah, so we, we did nine months, didn't have a space, none of that stuff. I mean, it was only after that approval that we, you know, went and leased a space and then started the build out process. And that was, see, we did that in. We, we leased the space in May of 15 and opened in November of oh. 15. So we kind of booked it. That's not bad. I mean, that's actually a pretty fast that's haul. That's really fast. Yeah, I mean, it took us well, a, a I mean, year and a half. We spent nine months just right. trying to get it approved. So we, yeah. were, we had all these things lined up, and it was like, let's go. Yeah. So where did the name Civil Society come from? Where did you guys generate that from, and what, you know, what does that kind of stand for you guys? So we were we were kicking around a ton of names and, you know, I'd always liked um, something to do with like civil or something like that. I mean, some of the other names that we potentially would have been were looking back were just awful. But, um, you know, one day we were sitting there kicking names around and I just spat out civil society and it was just like, Oh, that's it. Nice. And then, you know, it works for us because we, you know, we want a place where everybody can come and it's just be civilized. Know, that's it. Just, just <laughs> hang out. And, and everybody get the, get along. That's funny that you bring up past names. Actually, thinking back on it, I think one of the original names we were kicking around before we settled on and everybody was like, you know, you're known as this because all your homebrew was actually uh, 25th Parallel Brewing because Miami sits on the 25th Parallel. And I'm, I'm, I'm kind of glad now that I never went that way because that would have been very... <laughs> no. well, it's so funny now because we, you know, we know each other so well as this brewery, right? Right, right. you have a and brand established. It, and it's kind of like your identity and to think of it as something else. You're listening to The Beer Hour with Jonathan Wakefield and we're talking to Carl Volstad of Civil Society Brewing. Talking about hazies, as far as the Southeast goes, I would say that you guys are the trailblazers i mean you guys are the ones that started it way before anybody else you know i mean certain other brewers in the state i think back then looked at hazy ipas like as a blasphemy you know what i mean like oh you shouldn't be brewing that you know your your ipa shouldn't be you know it's under attenuated you're doing this on purpose this is not a real beer we won't get into those people's names but you guys are really the ones that that started the hazy movement down here. Now everybody does it down here, but you guys to me were the ones that started it all. And and especially with like beers like fresh, you know, which, you know, is a Northeast style hazy IPA. How do you describe these beers? Like back then when you guys first started brewing these things, how did you guys describe these to the beer, you know, to the people that were coming in drinking these things? Yeah. I mean, I think that first of all, it was overcoming, you know, people's preconceived notion of what an IPA was. Um, you know, so many people like really, uh, identified IPA as super bitter, more of a West coast style IPA. Um, and that was not what we were making. Um, we were making something more delicate, less bitter, more fruit forward, you know, using hops in different ways. And, you know, that's how we explain it to people. And, you know, it was just, taste it and go from there. And most people <laughs> tasted it. And it, it was something that was completely different for them 
than what they thought an IPA was. I mean, I, I guess the question I've never asked, and, it, and it's interesting, you know, that I'm thinking about this now, is did you guys get any backlash for brewing those kind of beers since you guys really were the first ones down here doing it? That's interesting. I don't, I don't know outside of maybe a few people here and there that were uh, maybe customers of other breweries here that, you know, really thought that style was specifically one way versus like the emergence of new styles, like, you know, the the hazy IPA. And, um, but no, not, I think once they tried it and we talked about what it was and, and how it differed, you know, we're not trying to make a West coast IPA. We're not trying to make, um, you know, your old school kind of East coast IPA where this is something completely different. And we weren't advertising it as that either. You know, it was, yes, it's IPA, but there's distinct differences here. Right now. I mean, it's another kind of similarity that we share because you guys started with the hazy IPAs and we were really the first ones in Miami and kind of South Florida to start doing like kettle sours and people were like, Oh, I mean, I feel like you guys kind of trailblazed that for the entire country. So, (laughs) well, we won't, I I would agree. I mean, we're not, I won't go that far, but well, I know, I know. (laughs) No, I'm sure that you guys had your own. Well, no, you know, it was because like, Oh, what are these sour beer? Like who's going to drink a sour beer? But it was also the same thing with the stouts because we were doing a ton of stouts and it was like, Mm -hmm. you're not going to sell a stout in Miami. It's way too hot for that. And I could tell you nowadays that it doesn't matter what time of year, how hot the weather is, people want to drink stouts. So it's just, it's kind of overcoming those, those old notions and ideas yep. and just keep pushing forward with what you're doing because that's what you believe in. You know what I mean? For the sours, it was, it was more so um, how dare you charge $25 for a seven fifty of a beer that hasn't even sat in a barrel aging. You know what I mean? And we're like, well, we use thousands of pounds of fruit. It costs money. (laughs) But the funny thing to me is, because I think you guys do sours as well. The funny thing to me is, is the way of wild beers and mixed culture and stuff like that, which used to be all the rave and hype. uh, And everybody that looked at us from that sector uh, doing these kettle sours are like, oh, these aren't real sours. These are trash, this and that. Mm-hmm. No one really wants the wild mixed culture stuff anymore on the same volume. And everybody wants kettle sours. So it's kind of mm-hmm. like, <laughs> it's kind of come full circle to me. It's kind of weird. Everything kind of seems to have its day. And I, I don't, I don't necessarily understand why they would be so upset. I mean, it's not like kettle sours or the idea of what kettle sours are don't have, you know, their own rich tradition maybe done differently but you know very similar style of beer that has its own tradition you know going back into the past yeah absolutely so i mean i also have to say that you guys have now during this time span opened a second location in palm beach Mm -hmm. what i mean what happens there is that your production facility majority or what what goes on there so um you know the idea was that that was going to become more of a production facility we do have a tasting room there as well um we have a larger system there and we do, we brew quite a bit of our distribution beer out of there. And then, um, you know, a lot of the, the beers that we'll brew in Jupiter that we really want to continue to brew on a larger scale, we'll brew in, in West Palm. Um, but we're brewing in both places. We certainly do more in West Palm at this point now though. What kind of total production are you looking at annually now between the two facilities? We'll probably do 4,500 barrels this year. Nice. Um, we have space to, to grow and, and, and do quite a bit more in West Palm. So we're excited about that. You also have taken an approach of like really embracing a family first ethos at civil society. You've even named mm-hmm. y- your tanks after family members and loved ones. Why was yeah. it important to you to mix that family element into your business? I mean, I think it's just the way I grew up. I mean, we always were around family. I mean, that was what was important. Um, and, you know, when we open the brewery, I mean, you know, you look at my partners and even Evan, who's not a family member, but I've known him for, you know, more years of my life than I haven't. So, um, you know, the process of opening the brewery was very family oriented, you know, going through that, you know, there's a ton of support from the family. And even today there's, they're all there and involved in some fashion from support or working at the brewery and, you know, things like that. I mean, yeah. I mean, I I applaud that very much to have that very rooted kind of family setting inside the brewery. I mean, we 
we name our uh, tanks after Star Wars planets. So, <laughs> just to show you what John really loves in life, <laughs> you know. Um, so I know you have the Jupiter location. You got the Palm Beach location. What's next on the map for you guys? Additional locations, more distribution. I mean, are you trying to be in every Publix from Palm Beach to to Key West? I mean, what's yeah, the plan? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think that. Um you know, obviously, you know, growing the footprint in South Florida, I mean, I still feel like we're under distributed in South Florida um, and trying to, you know, keep up with all that. Um, we may look to other territories in the state too and start growing those, um, you know, always open to new locations, new challenges, things like that. I think the, you know, you and I both lament the state laws that make it really difficult to open ancillary locations just because of the, I need know. to have some sort of production there. Yep. Um, and then, you know, having to go through the process with a town that may or may not have certain criteria or going through the process from the, you know, from scratch where you have to create the use like we did in Jupiter. Um, but always, always open. I'm not, we don't have anything on the horizon, but. It's in the back of your mind at least. Well, it's always there, right? I yep. mean, you know, Florida is a, a very large state. And, you know, the the population, the density is spread out, you know, Campus four hours from here, or right, like two and a half. Jacksonville's four and a half. You know, Gainesville's five and a half. You know, the things are nothing's close, and so there's a I don't know. I mean, I guess if you want to expand, I mean, you, it's either through distribution or opening like a satellite uh, tap room slash small brewery right. in those areas to help you reach those areas in a, in a better fashion. So yeah, I mean, I mean, it's always in the back of our mind as well. Like, what's next as far as covering florida because i mean we send out a state as well but really the home state is the number one thing to handle and i mean, I mean it's you always certainly want to take care of your your home state right? oh yeah and absolutely it's not always I an easy like... thing with distributors but you know no, and i think you're right you either you you choose to do one or the other or you know doing both is kind of those are the only options you have to grow it's you're kind of pigeonholed in those directions because of the laws of the state absolutely yeah I, florida yeah. kind of <laughs> i I deal a lot more with distributors now and it's yeah. Florida is always the headache. Yes, right? it is. Yeah. Yep. It is. A, it is a pain. So I actually, I, I called you from uh, DC this weekend to talk about the festival that I was just at Snally Gaster and you have a festival an anniversary coming up in uh, November. Okay. And uh, I think, you know, cause I called you to talk about how big the festival was and how many people, what is your, I mean, cause you throw a festival every year to celebrate your anniversary. Can you tell our listeners about that to kind of help, you know, give some awareness yeah. to that upcoming event? Yeah, no, I appreciate it. So, uh, every week before Thanksgiving, that Saturday before Thanksgiving, we throw our anniversary party. Um, we close down the street in front of our uh, location in Jupiter and, you know, invite a ton of breweries that we're friends with this year. We're going to have, I think 53 or four, you know, plus ourselves, and then um, tickets actually went on sale today through the Osner app. Nice. Um, and then, uh, yeah, I mean, it's a really fun time. It's 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 so it's so much fun for us to, you know, have people in town and be able to like showcase Jupiter, Florida to people and just hang out. You know, we've all become, you know, pretty tight friends because we all travel to the same places all the time and we're seeing each other all the time in this in this circuit that we call it, um, of, uh, festivals. And then, um, yeah, I mean, for our staff, they really enjoy it. It's a, it's a opportunity for us to say thank you to them. Once, once, uh, the event's over, we, we don't open the breweries. It's, it's time for everybody to kind of enjoy themselves. They put in a ton of work throughout the year and especially for that anniversary. So yeah, tickets on sale on Osner app. Yeah. And for those that are listening out there, I would say if you have not been to the festival, I would say definitely go and check it out. It is an awesome time. And the setting in that downtown area, Abacoa, is is really, really awesome. I got one more question for you. You and I have traveled to a ton of festivals inside the country and been to a lot of different cities and places and brewed a lot of different beer in, in, in different cities. What would you say is the biggest misconception about Florida craft beer? Biggest misconception about Florida Craft. Um, that I think that there's two things. One is the, uh, and I don't know if this is what you said, cause I was kind of talking when you said it, but <laughs> one thing is that everybody thinks that, uh, it is just astonished at how much stout is sold down here. Um, yes. <laughs> it's, 
like it's 90 degrees outside and all they want is stout. And I, you know, I think there's, there's a reason for that, but, uh, it's, uh, you know, would be the water in Florida is so horrible for almost every other style of beer. Yes. So if you're using city water and not doing much to the water, really the only beer that you could brew, you know, without any sort of chemistry would be stout because it's just the way the water profile is in here. And then the other, the other misconception is that, um, you know, that the Florida breweries are, you know, one dimensional things like that. Like you either just do a stout or you just do sours or you just do hazy IPA stuff like that. I mean, I think that we've all kind of shown that, um, that's not true. And, and, and move, you know, with, with attending these festivals and get invited to things and stuff like that. I just want to say thank you very much for coming on the show, brother. And it was uh, great to have you on and uh, very excited that you were actually our first Florida guest. So a plus for that one. I appreciate the opportunity. It's always good to spend some time with you guys. Thanks, Carl. And, we'll uh, see you soon. Actually, yeah, we'll see you soon for your festival, man. We'll be, we, yeah. we'll be pouring at the fest. Yes, so. you will. We're excited about that, too. So, awesome. Thanks, brother. Have a good one. You, too. Thank you. You're listening to The Beer Hour with Jonathan Wakefield. Conversations on the business of brewing and popular culture. Our next guest is an award-winning food and spirits editor for Miami New Times. Based in one of the country's most dynamic food markets, she is also an avid traveler who is connected to the food and beverage scenes in other cities, including her hometown of New York City. She has been featured on Cooking Channel's Eat Street and Food Network's Great Food Truck Race. She won an AAN award for her feature about what it's like to wait tables. She's also a craft beer lover, an avid runner, and a dedicated dog mom. Welcome to the Beer Hour, Lanny Doss. Thank you very much for joining us today in the tap room. It's, uh, it's been a minute, but uh, glad to have you back. I know, I know. I actually, it's, it's nice to be here with people in it open because right. yes. I was getting beer to go for a, a while Yes, we're we're very you know very happy to be out of that time period and uh, moving towards a much more positive uh, stream here. So, I do want to start. How important was food in your household growing up to you? Actually, I, I have a theory about why people get into food, and it's either because they were in a household where food was super important, or they were in a household where food was not important at all. And my mother's specialty was um, the box craft macaroni and cheese. <laughs> wait, okay. wait, wait. Okay. But it gets worse because she wouldn't even take that powdered orange oh, cheese boy. substance and mix it with like milk and butter. She right. would just sprinkle it over the noodles, dry oh. and plain and bland. <laughs> so... So I, I'm like seven or eight years old and I pick up this like cookbook at the library, like cooking for kids. Right. And she was like, no, like it's a slippery slope. Like don't cook, don't do anything domestic. But I had to, right? had to. And then I became obsessed. I think, I think it's one way or the other. So I I would agree with you because my mom didn't do the craft, but um, (laughs) she was a working, you know, single mom. And my mom used to actually order uh, box dinners to the house, you know, because I would always come home alone from school and the food was absolutely horrendous. <laughs> so I was like, you know, what, I can't keep eating this. And I was probably like 10, 11 years old. And I'm like, you know what? I need to start learning how to cook for myself to make better food than the box food that I'm getting at home, you know, because it used to come with biscuits that you could throw at a window and probably break a window. Nice. But it was, you know, <laughs> it got me into cooking, which I still love cooking, but obviously that opened up the doors to me venturing into brewing and everything else. So I, I would agree that it's one of those two avenues probably leads you into that, that forte in that arena. Um, also along the line, when did you realize that you had a knack for writing? So that was something that came to me from a little girl. Um, My grandmother taught me how to read when I was probably about three years old. She gave me this complete love for the written word. And I was good at it. I've always been good at it. That's the only thing that I'm good at. I'm good at (laughs) writing, drinking beer, and dogs. That's it. Those are the only three talents I have. So, yeah. So I've always been good at it, but 
you know, you have to make a dime. So when I lived right. in New York, when I was brought up in New York, I was into marketing and PR and I went to school for technical writing, which is completely different than what I do yeah. now. And I just had an epiphany and I said, I don't want to do this anymore. I'd rather um, not make any money and be creative. And it's the best decision I ever had. You know, I mean, it's, you know, my job is got to be beside being a brewer one of the two best jobs ever throw in some puppies there right, and you course. got everything of course don't forget the dogs absolutely <laughs> so what was that feeling like when the first time you saw your name in a byline how did that feel it felt surreal i mean the first time i actually got a byline at the miami new times um i remember my first paycheck was 15 dollars Wow. Okay. <laughs> it's gone up since then. <laughs> right, of course. It's gone up since then. But yeah, but um, actually my first byline, I was in junior high school and we had a junior high school newspaper. Oh, okay. And normally it was like, here's the yard sale. And I would call up because I lived in uh, New York City. I would call up like SNL Studio 8H and ask to like interview people and interview like Billy Joel and Meatloaf and the local DJs. Wow. Yeah. And, you know, I wouldn't tell them it was for the junior high school newspaper. I tell them it was for like the community newspaper. (laughs) And I got these interviews and I got these interviews because their, their PR agent or their agent would say, if we give you 10 minutes with this person, will you never call again? Oh, again. Well, I mean, uh, what is the adage? I mean, uh, the squeaky wheel gets the oil. Yeah. 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 Almost. And my entire life is like, you know, just I will bother you until you do what I want and then I'll leave you alone <laughs> for the rest of your life. So, yeah. I mean, that's a good approach, though. I mean, you get things <laughs> done, right? I mean, yeah. it is. Um Many things have changed over the years in the newspaper business, but one thing that hasn't is the power wielded by food critics, I would say. It still seems that food critics still have massive followings, and that one column, good or bad, very, very true, can really have an impact on a restaurant or bar. How do you balance that sense of honesty with your readers against the potential harm that one of your columns can do to a bar or a restaurant? Ooh. Um, I don't ever set out to do any harm to anybody unless of course something happens like you know a small furry creature that shouldn't be there walks around or i get raw chicken something that could really hurt somebody that you want to the funny thing is that when you write a review and the chef or the restaurateur or the bar manager or the owner reads it they read it differently than you do. Right. So they will read only the one paragraph that says, you know, I didn't like the hummus. It had too much garlic in it. And the other 900 words, they completely forget. It's hypercritical. It, yes, yes. Yes. You look at yourself. When you look at yourself in the mirror, you see yourself differently and then the world sees you. So I think that we have only the power that people give us we're just trying to write a story right and you know the perception of that power is kind of strange um i've heard people say that when we write about them it sort of moves the needle um i just want to tell a good story right i just want to tell a good honest story story right right I mean, one of the things that has changed, obviously, though, is the influx of food bloggers. It seems that everyone out there with a stomach and a keyboard can can write yeah. about food you know, just, or be an expert, you know, on food. Yeah, we see it. In, we also see it in the craft beer industry. How do you break through the noise so that the voice of the publication that you write for is still heard versus whoever these people are? It's it's very, very difficult because, you know, I just got an email saying We'll give you a free dinner for like a blog post and like two pictures on your Instagram page. And I email the back and say, no, not interested. That's not what I do. That's not what we do. I had somebody else, a restaurant owner say, hey, um, you know what? I'll make it easy for you. I'll pay somebody to write a story and you just publish it. And I'm like, no, that's not what we do 
Um, but I see. I think a lot of it's gone that way nowadays. It's a, like the easy route. You know? A lot of it's gone that way. Um, it makes it more difficult. I think the only thing to do is just, you know, put your head down, try to tell the good story. Right. I think everything is cyclical. I think I don't think social media will ever leave, but I think there is a, a there is a place for both. Right. Um, outlets. There's a place for like a good story, and there's a place for just you know taking a picture of a of a, a plate. cheeseburger. Said, right, right. Yeah. No, I agree. I'm, and I would probably 100 percent agree. It's very cyclical. I mean, I think I saw a meme the other day about how great MySpace used to be with it just being coding and certain things, and how we've gone so far. But people tire of things very fast nowadays. So what's going to be the next thing? You know what I mean? We are going to move on from Instagram sooner or later here. And what's the next thing? But it has given a voice to people that really, I don't know. I mean, are are they really experts? Probably not. But it's made them seem like they are, even though they're they're not. Well, yeah. And I can, (laughs) I see your face, Jonathan, when you're talking about it. Yeah. Because I think you're a person who really believes in authenticity oh, absolutely um and i think that certain things need to be earned yes. and a lot of um influencers haven't earned their uh place as a critic but then again who's who's to say, who's to I say think that we, anymore we're yeah. in we're in a society right now that's very much in flux and but it's funny you're doing a podcast you're doing you know an right. hour-long podcast and people listen to that right so that just tells me that there's room for something longer form. Yes. More than just taking a picture because Absolutely. you could have just upped your Instagram right. game and I could just have done taken a, a picture. a story or a reel. <laughs> yeah. I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but I, radio is still very much around. And I think um, the written word as far as stories and everything else is very much around. And I think it still holds a lot of weight to me. At least I don't want to be called old school or thinking, old school thinking. But I mean, it, to me, that is a more verified way of doing things. You know what I mean? And hopefully it continues to think that way. And it's not just, you know, a 30 second clip or a picture gets what, you know, try to convey things or that's what actually people go off of as far as what, you know, is taken as. I think there's, I think there's room for both. You know, there's always been room for just an art, a picture telling a story. Um, I think what sort of, needs to go though is that people who do not have credentials right of being a critic saying that they are a critic like yelp is a good way of people maybe taking the time to just uh shut up right i know i mean we could probably talk about this all day but i i do i do you know it's it's an important topic but we can keep going on obviously forever you have a great deal of admiration for the late Anthony Bourdain. I believe you actually have met him a few times. I've met him quite a few times, yeah. Why do you think so many people loved Anthony Bourdain? He was a storyteller. Even though he was in the middle of the story, I feel like he actually really wanted to be behind the scenes and tell somebody else's story. I don't know if he was the happiest when he was in front of the camera as just telling the story of the other person. Um, but that was, I think, a gr- there's always room for a great storyteller. There's always room for somebody who can look outside the box and think outside the box. And instead of writing about his celebrity chef friends or taking us there to, you know, Laverna Den right. or the Four Seasons. He went off the map. He would go to this tiny little place in a subway station right you know with one person cooking behind one hot plate right and tell that tale which was amazing i watched every show and it was amazing to see these but you could definitely see he would he probably would have been more comfortable not in front of the camera but behind it i think so i think maybe and i and i hate to say it i think maybe all that fame sort of didn't work in his favor right right you know i think maybe if he was just just kept on writing his books or something, he might have, who knows, second guessing, you know, but, you know, he just might have... Gone in a different direction. Gone in a different direction, yes. You're listening to The Beer Hour with Jonathan Wakefield, and we're speaking to writer Lainey Doss. 
So o- over the years, obviously, you know, I've known you for a while now. We've come to know Lenny Doss that she knows her shit when it comes to beer. When did you first become aware of craft beer? Strangely enough, New York City didn't have like a huge craft no. beer scene. I think it's more sort of in that sort of California, Carolinas, where that came. So when I lived in New York City, I think Brooklyn Brewery was like right. the craft beer brewery. And then you had in the the village, in Greenwich Village, you had those like places where you walk down like a flight of stairs and they had like beers from around the world. Right. But that was it. And to be honest with you, before I really discovered craft beer and, you know, it was Rolling Rock and Corona, um, I wasn't a huge fan of beer. Right. You know, they're not very tasty. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I came here and I think when I started writing, that's when the craft beer movement actually moved to Miami. I think it's been around for eight years and I've been doing this for about 12 years. Right. And I just discovered it and grew with it in Miami. And what's so amazing, what I love so much about the craft beer movement here, and also I go to Asheville a lot, and now I just sort of go on beer tourism. Right. The passion and the story of you and other brewers who started like, just out of a hobby, the hobby turned into a passion. The passion turned into an obsession. Right. The obsession turned into a business. Yeah. The business was not the most lucrative at first. And then right. it, it, it blossomed yeah. out of the knowledge and out of the passion. And for me, going to a tap room, it's probably the friendliest, most low-key place that you can go. You can go there by yourself. You can go there with a friend. You can go on a date. You could bring your dog. It's just, it's, it's all of that combined. It's, it's the passion and the knowledge behind the product. It's the product being delicious and interesting. And it's just the, the great vibe of a, you know, of a tap room that I love all of it. Yeah. I mean, it's it's interesting that you said that because I don't know if there's another industry that majority of the industry is formed from a hobby. I really don't. I mean, I can't think of a lot that, that comes to mind that you can go, hey, it was just a hobby that turned into a passion. Then all of a sudden it's a business. I mean, I just don't know of another one that majority of the people that are in the industry now with businesses in the industry that started that way. Yeah. It's very interesting, though. And the majority of brewers, I'm not going to say, you can't say everybody. Um, I don't know if I can curse here. Of course. We're on serious. Okay. The majority of people that I've met in the craft beer scene are not assholes. Right. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. There are people, and it's a cliche, but there are people that you want to have a beer with. Right. Go figure. Right. It's very, I mean, it's, it's. It's a different industry for sure. And anytime somebody really geeks out over what they do, they bring me in. Right. They bring me in that that interest shows and I want to be involved. Right. Like you're so into what you do and you so want to show me like your latest beer. Oh, you know, try this. I think you'll like it. You know, oh, I made it with this. It just, it, it brings me in. It makes me interested. It makes me want to tell the story. It makes me want to try the beer. It makes me want to sit there. I just, it's the whole picture. It's right. the whole picture. I think, you know, one of the things that separates you as a food and beverage writer is that your culinary experiences extend well beyond the market, you know, that, that you cover. What food and beverage trends are you seeing right now, kind of like nationwide? I am seeing three trends. Two, I love. One, I can do without, but I understand. So I've been, in the past couple of months, I've been to LA, I've been to Chicago, I've been to New York City. Um, I've also been recently to Colorado and Utah. So it's sort of a cross-reference of the US, maybe. Right. Um, And of course, Miami. And I think one common trend is that people want comfort food. I've gone to 
dinner with friends who are other food critics and food writers, and we'll look at a menu and we'll all say, you know what, I just want a burger. I just want a good burger. And I think because it's been a rough right. year and a half going on too, and there's something just comforting about a great burger or a great taco. The other thing that I'm seeing that I really like is that um, there are very much more plant-based, vegan-friendly, vegetarian-friendly places that are opening, which, to be honest, um, I'll have a burger once a week, and then I really like to eat plant-based a lot. It's better for me. It's better for the environment. And I feel good when I eat that, but I also don't want to just snack on a Brussels sprout. Like, <laughs> no, no, <laughs> no, I don't think I could do that. I need something a right. little more interesting. Substantial. Yeah. yeah. Like, don't give me a carrot right. in a hot dog bun and right. say it's a carrot hot dog. It's, it's funny. I mean, speaking upon that trend, but, you know, I've talked to, to Maria about this. Um, I've been to EMP, 11 Madison Park, multiple yep. times up there. Um, Daniel Hum, great restaurant great food but i think it was in the beginning of the pandemic he made a shift to 100 percent plant-based yes which i was kind of like scratching my head kind of going like what is this guy doing but then well they were shut during the whole pandemic and then he right. decided to pivot to right all right. all plant-based yeah and how wonderful is that because you know what they're only like and I hate the word protein, but let's just use the word protein to say like beef, chicken, pork, fish, turkey, fish. So five. Um, and how many more wonderful things that you can cook with in the vegetable, plant, fruit, nut, seed world. I think it takes a really good chef oh, to no. be creative yes. with that. Uh, absolutely. And you work a lot with fruits. Yes. Yes. Um, and it's it's just a, a an amazing world. I know you work with fruits and nuts and all those wonderful right. flavors, and you could really do so much. You could bring out so much with that. Yeah, I'm definitely down to try it out. Yeah, I mean, it was kind of a head scratcher for me, but I Let's definitely do want to try. Five hundred dollars on some broccoli, right? Right. right. <laughs> Eggplant, you know, broccoli, carrots, yes, uh, br Brussels sprouts. Um, so what is the other trend that you're not so hot on? Um, automated restaurants, ghost kitchens, places that take out the humanity between the consumer, really? the chef. Yeah. And I'm seeing that. And look, it makes sense because we were in a pandemic. And I think a lot of restaurants pivoted toward that delivery only. Um, I was in New York and it's coming to Wynwood. It might be coming right next door to your brewery, Jonathan. There is an automated dumpling place where you hit, there's a menu that comes up on a screen. Right. You hit what you want. You pay with a credit card and these dumplings come out of a little, looks like a little locker. You never see a person. You never talk to a person. Um, and, there's one that's opening in Wynwood soon. Well, I mean, isn't that a, uh, I mean, that was a thing most common like in, in Asia and stuff like that. Yes. Uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. Like the and in New York, ordering. there were like yeah. automats. Right. Um, but they're coming back and I think they're coming back because of the pandemic. I think people are still maybe shy of uh, interacting with people. Right. I think maybe some people have lost their communication and people skills maybe well, after of course, a year after and a half. Yeah. And I think some people also see the value in just not meal. spending money and, and staying at home and watching Netflix and, right. and bringing in like a pizza. I mean, I, I, I can't disagree. I mean, like <clears throat> most of the time I will order to the house. I'm not going out to eat. But I mean, when I get the opportunity, I'm going to go to the restaurant. I do, I do miss going to restaurants. I mean, we were just in D.C. last weekend for a beer fest. And we went out, you know, to multiple different restaurants, which was a good feeling. It's been a while. I don't know if I would ever be comfortable just buying food from a locker. Right. Exactly. It just takes the humanity out. And yeah. I'm the kind of person who I like to sit at a bar and eat a meal. And even if I'm by myself, there is the bartender to talk to. I like that. When I go out to eat, when I'm not cooking at home, I, I want to... Uh, deal with other humans. Right. I want to see agree. other humans. I want to interact with other humans. 
And I think that's also taking the hospitality industry has taken a hit. Huge. There are a lot of people, servers and um, line cooks and stuff that have left that are not coming back. No. Um, and this just almost... Uh, Might break it. Gives them... Yeah. No. It just... It, you know, I think this is a, a, a sea change in the hospitality industry yeah. that is, for me, not a positive. Right. I hear you. What was the best restaurant meal that you've ever had? Oh, the best I, restaurant I mean, it's, meal a, it's an I obvious question, had. but yes, I mean, it's still a good one. And are you taking into account service? Are you the experience? Because everything nowadays, like you were alluding to earlier, yes. is about an experience. Yes. The best restaurant meal I have ever had was in Rome. Ooh. Um, I forgot to tell my bank that I was going to Italy. Right. So my credit card and my bank card were both turned off. Ooh. I had 20 euros to last for 24 hours, maybe. Wow. Um, and I went around the corner and I don't remember the name of the place. I went around the corner and I found this tiny place and it had only old men speaking right. Italian. And I said, okay, that's where I want to go in an alleyway. And I went in and they had a thing. It just said like appetizer and it was like 15 euros. And I'm like, I have enough money for this and a glass of cheap wine. It, and do you remember what you had? It was always oh, a minute. It was a minestrone. So they brought a minestrone soup and then they brought another table and they put a table next to my table and they kept on bringing out like a little plate of cheese, some bread and olive oil, like a couple of sardines. Oh. And it was for f like, seriously, Jonathan, 15 right. euros. They just kept on bringing food. That's they amazing. just kept on bringing food. And then the chef comes out because I'm like. American. He like right. he doesn't understand why an American is sitting here because it's only old Italian men from right. Rome in this restaurant. And I had the most amazing, amazing time just having like a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little taste of this, a little antipasto, a little right. this. It was amazing. It was amazing. That's and I'll awesome. never forget that for the rest of my life. Well, thank you very much for, for coming on the show. I, uh, I very much appreciate your time and your honesty. And uh, it is always good to see you. Always good to see you. Always good to see you yes. and have a uh, beer in the morning. <laughs> well, I mean, we're in the afternoon now. It's okay. 12.55. So we're, we're right. good to go. Thank so, you, Lainey. Thank you, Lainey, very We appreciate much. it. Thank yes. you. Right. And that's it for this week. I'd like to thank my guests, Carl Volstad and Lainey Doss, my co-host, Maria Cabre, and my Tony producer, Rocco Riggio. Thanks for listening. You can catch us each Friday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time on Business Radio 132. Replays are on Saturdays at 8 p.m. and Sundays at 1 p.m. or anytime on the SiriusXM app or wherever you listen to podcasts. Remember, people, the thirst is real.